Well, good morning. Man, it is so good to be together as a church family, isn't it? Especially on such a beautiful day. It's going to be mid-50s today in Chicago in February, which is amazing. And tomorrow's going to be in the 60s. And Tuesday is supposed to hit 70 degrees. Love it, love it. I hope you plan to get outside a little bit. I'm planning to tomorrow, my day off. Maybe get some exercise. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people on the bike path this week. Um, You know, the challenge with Chicago, though, you can't, like, exercise outdoors all year round. Unless you like snowshoeing or something like that. Cross-country skiing. It's too cold, and maybe that's one of the reasons why health clubs, fitness gyms are so popular, I think especially in the Midwest. I grew up in Southern California, so we didn't need it out there, but they are still valuable. But take a look at this. Fitness gyms are quite a thing in the U.S., especially compared to other countries. It's reported that there are over 41,000 gyms with 64 million members just in the U.S., and they take in $35 billion a year in revenue. It's big industry. But now, something new coming up, it's different. Look at this, virtual physical fitness. Now, when I think virtual fitness, I think of an app where like, they take a headshot, my head picture, and put it on like a super ripped body. <laughs> That's like virtual fitness, like Arnold, you know? But what it really is, virtual fitness is like remote physical fitness where through virtual reality combined with fitness, you think you're right there in the room with the trainer or with a group of people who are working out. I know my son, when he was doing bicycle training, he would be in our basement riding with a group of men from all over the country. And you could see a representation in her bicycles and they're racing and you could see the track, but he's just staring at his laptop in the basement. So virtual physical fitness. Well, I'm curious, how many people are members of a fitness gym? Don't be embarrassed. Yeah, that's pretty true to what they say about one in four adults. How many practice some form of virtual physical fitness? A few, a few. It's going gonna, it's gonna to increase by some tenfold, they say, in, that, in the next 10 years. So up and coming. I'm not part of a gym. I try to exercise regularly, and I need to, because my wife came up with what I think is the best dessert I've ever tasted. <laughs> Get this. White chocolate maple pecan macaroons. Yeah. Oh, look. In case of emergency, open glass. <laughs> Check this beauty out. I just can't resist these things. I, and I'd never had them until just a couple weeks ago, but oh, look at that. Isn't that something? It'd be rude if I were to stand up here and eat it in front of you. Oh, man. I'll leave those for Lazarus. (laughs) 
My two-year-old grandson has this saying when I ask him, is that good? He goes, mmm, so good. <laughs> no? It awesome. But I don't have enough for anybody else. But physical fitness is not a bad thing at all. In fact, Scripture says it's a good thing. Take a look at this verse. Physical training is of some value. It's a good thing. It's helpful. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical fitness is good, but spiritual fitness or godliness is far better. Now, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to eat the rest of this guy. got a handful of crumbs here and no video breaks. So what our text focuses on this morning is spiritual fitness. And we're in this series called Dear Church, and this is the Apostle Paul's Oh, I forgot. Look at this. History is marching forward to an appointment with the risen Lord. Do you believe that? We are all going to meet him face to face, believer or non-believer. And so don't we want to be in shape? It's going to be the most important, significant encounter of our lives. We are going to meet Jesus, the risen Lord, face to face. We want to be ready. We want to be in shape. So anyway, we're in this series I think it's coming up next. There it is, Dear Church. And this is the Apostle Paul's letter to this little baby church in Thessalonica. And he's been writing about end times and this this coming up encounter with the Lord. But now it's shifting a bit and he's talking about being ready for that encounter. Man, I got to eat this thing. And so... As his letter continues this morning, the message title is Spiritual Fitness. And we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22. Two simple parts of the outline. Exercising discipline, pun intended. And secondly, exercising discernment. So, we're going to get to work on this. I'm going to put the rest of the save it for later. Um. These are some of the shortest verses in the Bible. A couple of them are only like two or three words. So it's a very short text, but there's a lot in there. So let's just start by reading through it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. This is God's fitness plan for us. And I want to look first at exercising discipline in verses 16 through 18. And a question I hear a lot is, how can I know what God's will is? How can I know? And it's a great question because our goal as believers is to understand God's will and to follow, to obey. And there's lots of big decisions we face. Maybe it's like career choices or medical decisions. Or maybe it's a major purchase. And we want to know God's will. And he wants to lead us in those things. But while 
we're pursuing his will in these large, complicated matters of life, we have to be careful that we don't miss his very simple will in every, the everyday things of life as well. And so look at the end of verse 18. It says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is his will? It gives us three things. Be joyful always. Pray continually. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you. Now I wanted to come up with some kind of mnemonic, a memory aid to help us remember this. And I hit the jackpot. Here it is. Jackpot. (laughs) There you go. Joyful, prayerful, and thankful. This is God's will. Now, I don't want to trigger someone's gambling habit, but this is talking about the spiritual jackpot, something better by far to be right in the middle, the center of God's will. Now, notice the absolute nature of each of these. It says, be joyful, When? Always. Pray. How much? Continually. Give thanks when? All circumstances. These aren't occasional things. These are perpetual things. We're to do them ongoing. All day. Every day. In every situation. Now, do you struggle with any of these? I do. Only the first three. That's the ones I struggle with the most. But we need practice, don't we? We need practice. We need encouragement. We need exercise. And that's one of the beauties of being together. See, how many people have some fitness equipment in their basement? How many people use it? I don't. Not not for fitness. Like we can hang laundry on the treadmill, you know, and it just kind of sits there. Because for one... We need encouragement. I think that's one of the reasons why gyms are so important. We have to encourage one another because this is hard. It's hard work. It takes discipline. It takes commitment. So we need encouragement. So let's look at each of these three. First it says, be joyful always. That's a pretty tall order. Now you know that joy is not the same as happiness. It's not the same as being happy. Happy is based on what's happening. When good things are happening we're happy. When good things aren't happening, we're not happy. When bad things are happening, we're unhappy. Our happiness is dependent upon on happenings. Does anybody have good things happening all the time? Good things happening always? I don't. But yet it says to be joyful always. So clearly, our joy must be different than our happiness. Our joy must not be dependent on happenings. And in fact, it's not. Joy is an inward gladness that's not dependent on what's happening on the outside. You can have the worst things happen to you and you can still, or you should still, experience joy. And probably the best example of this is Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. And in fact, Silas is with Paul as he's writing this letter. Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians open up by saying from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So the two of them are writing this letter. And they were arrested, beaten, like flogged, like Jesus. 
thrown in prison, put in the stocks. Their feet were fastened in the stocks. And what were they doing? They were praying and singing worship hymns. And it says the other prisoners were listening to them. Imagine these beaten men. And they're singing these psalms, these hymns of praise. What was happening to them, I bet they weren't happy about it. I bet they were not happy, but they were joyful. Joy won't happen by getting rid of our trials. It's, it's just not. It'll happen by changing our perspective on our trials. Let me read you this letter from a college student. She wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I guess you heard by now that the dorm burned down. We were all in the basement smoking pot. And I guess somehow we set the dorm on fire. But no one was hurt, and we got most of our belongings out in time. Oh, and I'm getting married soon. You see, I have to, because I'm going to have a baby. You'll meet Bob soon. He's got a really cool Harley. Well, the letter continued, Actually, I'm not pregnant. I don't even know anyone named Bob. And I'm not going to get married. There was no fire, and I wouldn't know what to do with pot. But it did flunk chemistry, and I just wanted you to be able to put it into perspective. (laughs) Perspective changes everything, doesn't it? In a similar way, we need a right perspective on our trials. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, Blessed are you. When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad. That sounds like crazy talk. Rejoice. You're being persecuted, insulted. People are saying evil things. They're hurting you. Rejoice. How could we possibly do that? Well, then Jesus finished the verse. He said, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That's a different perspective, right? And that's the first key. To be joyful always, we need the right perspective. We need an eternal perspective. Maybe it would be helpful to remind ourselves of the right perspective as we're facing a trial. We could maybe even say it out loud. Sometimes we just got to preach to ourselves. We have it up here, but we got to get it in here. We got to live it out. Maybe we're facing persecution. We could say to ourselves, God's reward is going to be awesome. And remind ourselves of that. When some material thing gets broken, you buy something new, a new car, and you take it to Meyer and come back, and there's a dent in the door already. It's frustrating, but hey, I can't take it with me anyway. One day it's probably going to burn if it's still around. If you're running short on money, I'm rich in spirit. Remind ourselves of that. I'm rich in spirit. I'm storing up treasures in heaven. See, these are the things that shape our perspective and enable us to be joyful always. There's another thing. If we want to be joyful always, we need God's presence. Psalm 1611 says, In his presence there is fullness of joy. I love that. I love that we can get together as a church family, the fellowship committee, and we can enjoy 
fellowship. We can laugh together. Even as we're studying God's word, I don't think it hurts to have a little fun. There's joy in the Lord, amen? So in his presence, now this is what Paul and Silas were doing. They were drawing near. They were entering the presence of God. They were praying and worshiping him. And he filled them with his joy. There's great joy in the presence of the Lord. And this is a spiritual fruit. It comes from fellowship with God by his spirit. We can't make it happen. We can't manufacture it. But we can draw near to God and let him produce that joy within us. This is something I've been praying about. When we did the first prayer initiative a couple years ago, you know, I had like five or six things that I really wanted to focus on. One of them was joy. Because ministry is hard. And I didn't want to be, you know, like joyful here and then you know, all the rest of the week. I wanted to be filled with joy. And, and I'm seeing progress in that. I'm not joyful always yet. But I'm trying I'm working at it. So it takes practice. It takes discipline. But this is what we're called to do as we await the return of the Lord. Be joyful always. Be joyful when you watch the news tonight. There's a challenge for you, a little exercise. Well, next it says in verse 17, doesn't get much easier, pray continually. Or as the ESV puts it, pray without ceasing. That too is a pretty tall order. Few Christians can say they pray as much as they should. Any, anybody here? Are there one or two? You know me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm only raising my hand to signal you. I'm not saying I pray as much as I should. I don't. Yet, if our goal is to be like Christ, prayer is indispensable. We could spend weeks talking about prayer. In fact, we have. Back in 2018, I did a series called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And it was seven or eight weeks where we really dove deeply into prayer. And you'll find that online under the Messages tab. You can search by series. You'll find a series. That's back when we had audio only, which is cool because you don't have to look at me. You can just listen to it. But we can't dive into this in that kind of depth today. But I do want to take a quick look at this topic of prayer. Prayer is simply this. It's a two-way conversation with God. Think about that. I think we just let that get away from us and lose our awe for what a privilege this is. It's a two-way conversation, a conversation. You talk and you listen. It's two-way. And through prayer, we can interact with the God of the universe, the God of all creation. He invites us in. We have access to him. 24-7. But we don't exercise that privilege often enough, do we? But if we really believe that God desires to hear from us, if we really believe that he listens, that he cares, and that he answers our prayer, then we need to pray. Studies show that the average Christian spends just two to four minutes a day in prayer. Now, by comparison, the average American spends 111 minutes a day communicating on their cell phone through talk or text. Two to four minutes, 111 minutes. There's 1,440 minutes in a day. Our plan with God has unlimited talk time. We only use two to four minutes. We can do better. Why do we need prayer? Why? What do we need that for? Well, let me just quickly cite three things. You probably won't have time to write them down. But prayer refines our understanding of God's will. 
It's, it's revealed in part in the word, but then it applies it to our specific situation. How can we follow him obediently if we don't know what he wants? Prayer allows us to participate in what he's doing. See, his purpose will prevail, but through prayer, we get to be a part of it. We get to have a role. And prayer allows us to place our request before him and experience the joy of his gracious provision. I find it so exciting when we pray and God responds to that prayer and we're filled with joy. Last week, our our student ministry team was preparing to leave on the winter retreat and they were going down to Starved Rock in, in central Illinois and one of the vans broke down before it even got to the church. And the elders got a text that said, need prayer for the youth retreat. One van broke down, pray for wisdom for Dan. Well, all the elders that were available at that moment just stopped and started praying. It, I mean, it was this weight, this heartache. Oh, Lord, don't stop this. Don't let this be a spiritual attack. These kids are going to study your word and to fellowship and to break bread together and to pray. Don't let anything stop this unless it's your will. Well, the broken down van was able to make it to the shop. We learned this on Wednesday night at our elders meeting just a few days later. One person was able to go pick up the driver while another person took Dan to the Enterprise, rent a car. He had called ahead and they said, Normally, we have to rent it for three days because they're not open on Monday. When we, we return it on Sunday, we've got to rent it all the way from Friday to Monday. And he said, look, I'll only charge you for the two days. And Dan thought, great. So he went down there. And when he met him in person, he's talking. And the man said, well, what, what are you going to be using the van for? And Dan said, well, we're taking a group of youth from our church to Starved Rock on a retreat. And the man says, oh. We just came back from there with our church group. I go to Chapel Street. How cool is that? And he says, you know what? In addition to a really good rate, I'm only going to charge it for one day, even though you're taking it for two. And so this thing that was such a heavy burden, we just got to see God work it out. I got the joy of seeing God's gracious provision. If I would have been part of that prayer, if I would have just learned on Wednesday how God worked and yet I wasn't there on my knees praying for this, I would have missed out on the joy. So we get to participate in what God's doing. Would they have gotten the van without our prayer? Maybe. But we would have missed the joy of being a part of it. So prayer allows us to participate in that. I'm sorry, Dan, that you had to go through all this just for my sermon illustration. I really am. But I got a kick out of it. It's awesome. I like what his dad, Dave Boyer, 40-plus year retired pastor, what he often says, much prayer, much what? Power. Yeah, we're much gladness, too. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Yeah, we got to remember, not just... Remember, we got to live, we got to live out that truth. So what does it mean to pray continually? Does it mean we pray nonstop? We can't talk to others, we can't even sleep because we have to pray continually? Well, if that's what it means, Jesus didn't do it. So it can't mean pray nonstop. And in fact, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that we pray nonstop, but that we pray consistently and even persistently. 
Listen to what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, for this reason, since the day I heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We have not stopped praying. Did he sleep? Yeah. Did he do other things? Yeah. But his prayer was ongoing and it was persistent. He didn't give up. He continued to pray. Now something that I think can help us pray continually is to learn how to have a free-flowing conversation with God throughout the day. And maybe you do that. Many of you probably do. Maybe you never have. But this can be a response to everything we see and do as we're going through our day. I was getting ready for a day of work. Lord, what a beautiful sunrise. It's magnificent. Now, I know other people accredit this to random chance, but I know you created it. Thank you, God. It's awesome. Go take a shower. God, thank you for hot water. We take it for granted, but you probably never had a hot shower in your entire time on earth, and we get it every day. Thank you for your provision. You're so good to us, Lord. This is awesome. Maybe you get in the car, and you're getting ready to go, and you see someone. Oh, God, I pray for that lady. It looks like she's rushing to get her children to daycare. Lord, keep her safe. God, I pray if they don't know you, that you'd put people in their place to point her and her children to Jesus. God, thanks for the song on the radio. Whatever you did in the life of this artist to inspire them to write these meaningful lyrics, thank you. It's awesome. It's ministering to my soul. Thank you for that. God, how can I love someone at work today? I'll be watching for the opportunity. You just prompted me. I'll be watching. Lord, thanks for this awesome coffee. You know what? Thank you for the people that work to grow and to harvest it. Thank you for the prosperity we have that allows us to enjoy this coffee from Colombia. And throughout the day, you can have a conversation with God. It's not just head down, eyes closed, hands folded. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's just a form of prayer. We can pray continuously. God longs to hear from us because he longs to bless us. Much prayer. When the prayers go up, the blessing comes down. So we need to be talking to the Lord. We, we place ourselves in his presence as we pray. And in his presence, there is a fullness of what? Joy. See, they're interrelated. And then there's a third thing in verse 18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, notice it doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. It doesn't. It says, give thanks in all circumstances. We don't have to pray, God, I thank you that this van broke down. I mean, that would probably be insincere. Maybe not now. We can look back and see how God worked in it. But, but we can be thankful in all circumstances. What does that look like? Maybe, God, thank you that you're faithful to provide for us. Thank you that we can trust you. That we can be at rest even in the midst of a trial, because we know that you'll work this out for our good and for your glory. What am I sweating this for, Lord? I've got you on my side. Thank you. That's what it looks like to pray in all circumstances, good and bad. So, thankfulness, 
goes hand in hand with the first two, being joyful and being prayerful. They go hand in hand. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Oh, look, I'm on, I'm on with the slides. I haven't gotten out of sync yet. I, haven't lost, I had a train wreck last week trying to keep up with the slides. He said this. He said, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. I think that's really good. I'm typically a lot better at presenting my new requests to God than I am at going back and thanking him for the ones he's answered. Do you, are you like that? Remember when Jesus healed the 10 lepers? Luke 11 says one of them, one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, not a Jew. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? As if he didn't know. <laughs> You're talking to the omniscient son of God. But it's a rhetorical question. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise up and go. Your faith has made you well. Too many times I'm like the nine rather than the one. I'm on to God. I need this now. But what about the things he granted me last week that I asked for? Or the things he withheld even though I asked him for it. Even those I can be thankful for. Because whatever he has for me is better than what I was asking for. Or maybe he's waiting to the perfect timing. So I need to be more diligent in giving thanks in all circumstances. So we have these three spiritual disciplines in these first verses. We need to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Jackpot. Spiritual jackpot. We need to exercise these disciplines. Exercise is necessary if we're going to grow stronger spiritually. So that's spiritual discipline or exercising discipline. Let's look next at exercising discernment in verses 19 through 22. We'll just read those again. They're short. Verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Have you seen those ads online for the fire blanket? I see them all the time on YouTube. They're always coming up. And somebody's got a raging fire on their stove. And they do something stupid like throw water on it. And it just gets worse. And then somebody comes over with the fire blanket. And puts it over it. And it extinguishes it. Or the barbecue grill. Is, is up in flame, and they throw this blanket over it. And, and my understanding is that it works really well. But in our text, in verse 19, it's talking about a good kind of fire, the Spirit's fire. And it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Don't throw a blanket over what the Spirit is doing. Now, as you can might suspect, there's different interpretations of what this verse is saying. There really are. And it's referring to the work of the Spirit. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Or maybe your version says do not quench the Spirit. Same thing. Don't put the kibosh on what the Spirit is doing is what it's saying. Now some apply this only to miraculous gifts. Or what are called sign gifts. Like prophecy or speaking in tongues or healing. And certainly prophecy is mentioned in the very next verse. 
But is this some or even all of what this verse is talking about? Well, I really wanted to dig into that. So let's step back from the verse for a moment and let's think about what the Spirit does as represented by fire. And I saw three things as I dug into it. First, fire represents God's presence. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of fire from within a bush, Exodus says. It was the presence of God. And as the Israelites traveled along in the desert, a cloud was over the tabernacle and at night it was fire. And there was a pillar of fire leading them. It brought them comfort. It brought them guidance. Fire represented the presence of God. In the New Testament, at Pentecost, the Spirit comes like tongues of fire landing on the people. So fire represents God's presence. Secondly, it represents God's passion. Jeremiah said the word of God in his heart was like a burning fire. Like the good kind of heartburn. Right? And, and he said it was like a fire shut up in his bones. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and, Emmaus, and he opened up the scripture and he was showing them how it all pointed to them. Do you remember what they said? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the word and taught us? Yeah. This fire can represent a passion for God. And then third, it represents God's purity. We see this throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. It talks about refiner's fire. Taking like gold and melting it down in the furnace and it becomes purified. The dross comes up to the top and you skim it away and you got pure gold. Refiner's fire. So fire talks about God's presence, his passion, and his purity. So to put out the fire of the spirit, I believe would be to suppress the Spirit's work in any of these three areas. Hey, you going to that Bible study this week? No, I thought I'd just stay at home. <laughs> Put the blanket over it. Squash that thing. We, we kill the opportunity for the fire of the Spirit to work in our heart. We miss that close fellowship with the Lord. We lose in time that passion, that excitement. Our hearts grow cold. And before long, we find that we're more walking in the flesh than walking in the Spirit. We've put out the Spirit's fire. Now contrast that to 2 Timothy verse one or chapter 1. It says in verses 6 and 7, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. They received the spirit, these very early believers, through the laying on of hands. And what was the result of this fire, the spirit being in them? He said, look, fan this into flame because the result will be power, love, and self-discipline, purity. This is the, the work of the spirit in our lives. So, are you on fire for God? Are you like burning red hot? Are you just kind of smoldering? You know what smoldering is, right? There's still something going on there. Maybe a little glow, but it's just a lot of smoke coming out. It's just smoldering. Or is the, is the flame about to go out altogether? 
Remember, history is marching toward an appointment with the risen Lord. You, believer or unbeliever, are going to meet up with him face to face. Will you be in shape for that? So next, verse 20 then says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. So here's where some put this verse with the last verse to say both are talking about these miraculous sign gifts, including the spiritual gift of prophecy. And it could be. Prophecy simply means to speak forth. And in a biblical sense, it means to speak forth the words of God to mankind, to people. Speaking the words or the counsel of God. And it can come in a couple different forms. We talked about this, but let's just look back at it quickly. There's foretelling. Foretelling is predicting a future event as enabled by God. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son. That was prophetic. Prophecy in that sense is like history written in advance. God tells us what's going to happen before it happens. That's predictive prophecy. That's foretelling. And the Old Testament is full of that kind of thing. But there's another type of prophecy also, and that's foretelling. And foretelling is declaring what God has already revealed. And so this includes teaching, warning, exhorting, comforting, what we talked about last week, what we're to do with one another, exhort one another. That is a form of prophecy. We're speaking the words of God to mankind because hopefully we're not just making up what we say, but we're revealing what God has already said. As I'm teaching this morning, I'm doing my best to reveal what God has said and explain and unpack that. It is a form of prophecy. So a common problem, though, in the first century, there were all these false prophets and false teachers. It says they had gone out among them. And they didn't even have the completed New Testament yet. They didn't have the full word of God. And so they have all of these false prophets. Now, a false prophet could say, well, God told me to tell you this. And if you argue against me, you're arguing against God. Because I'm his anointed messenger. Well, that's fine if he really is. But if he's not, Dan and I were talking about this last week. The prophet kind of has like the silver bullet. Oh, no, you're, don't tell me. Talk to God. This is his message. He's telling you to do this. I'm just relaying the message. So a false prophet could speak on behalf of God. And it sounds maybe convincing, but it might not be true. So this is why the very next verse, we'll come to it in a minute, it says, test everything. Don't just take it at face value, test it. Now, some people believe that the spiritual gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, healing, and other miraculous gifts were given only for the first century, and that with the completion of the Bible, they're no longer needed, so they don't exist. And this position is known as cessationism. They believe that the miraculous gifts have ceased. I'm not a cessationist. And I'm going to try to explain to you why. Now proponents will typically cite 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And it says, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. The big question, what is the perfection? 
They say it was the word of God. That's the perfection. And it's complete, so prophecy, tongues, disappear. Well, the problem I have with that is that if prophecy and tongues have disappeared, so has knowledge. So now we got this word of God, and we have no knowledge to discern what's in it. I don't think the perfection, personally, is talking about the word of God. I think it's talking about the return of the Lord. That's the perfection because the passage goes on to say, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then, when the perfection comes, we shall see face to face. That's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So, I'm not a cessationist. Now, I guess I'd be in what they call the camp of a continuationist. I believe those gifts continue. But I understand why people can be so skeptical of them because of their abuse or their outright counterfeit of those gifts. Now, I think it helps to note the primary purpose of these miraculous gifts. And it's the same today as it was back then. And you'll find that purpose in Acts 14, chapter 3 and 4. It's to establish the validity of God's word. It says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. What were the signs and wonders for? To confirm the message. I think the reason we don't see it happening as much in our setting today in this culture is the word of God is well established. But you go overseas with lead to Uganda, to Kenya, with some of our other missionaries in Asia, and there, these people never even heard the word of God. Who is this God? Well, let me tell you. Okay, how do I know that's true? God will affirm, validate it miraculously, just like Jesus did. He said, if you don't believe me, believe the miracles. It's to help people understand, this isn't just my words, these are the words of God. So we do see, I hear credible reports of miraculous things happening in foreign places where the validity of God and his word are not established. But I don't see it so much here. I don't dispute it. I think those gifts still exist. I do. God can do anything he wants. I'm not going to say, you can't do that, God. It's New Testament. Uh, but that's, that's how I see that. I'm, I'm not a cessationist. You might feel differently about it. It's okay. It's okay. We don't have to. You can still come to the picnic. We can still worship together. <laughs> it's not something to divide over. But verse 20 says, do not treat prophecies with content. So this could include words uttered by a person who has the gift of prophecy. I'm not saying this verse doesn't include that. I don't think that this is all that this verse is talking about, though. Because what prophecy has Paul been emphasizing in this letter? Just go back a few verses. The prophecy of the return of Christ, of the resurrection of the dead, of the rapture of the church, of the judgment of the unbelieving world, of the glorious inheritance of the saints. This is the prophecy he's talking about. And he said, don't treat this as with contempt. Don't act like it's not going to happen. It could happen any time. He says, we know this. We don't want you to be ignorant of this. 
So be on your toes. Be ready. Be in shape. Spiritual fitness. So, test everything. As an important qualifier, test everything. John, 1 John 4, in verses 1 and 2, says something very similar. It says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out in the world. Whenever we hear something that a person claims is from God, whether that's teaching from the pulpit or a prophetic utterance, we need to test it. We need to see, does it line up with the word of God? We've got to check it against something solid and unchanging, and that's God's word. The Bereans were a great example of this. Acts 17.11 says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Who's our letter to? The Thessalonians. For they, the Bereans, received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day, every day to see if what Paul said was true. Here they got an apostle talking to them. A man who saw the risen Lord. A man who was inspired by God and penned much of the New Testament. Did they just go, oh yeah, Paul? No, they said, wait, wait a minute, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to test what you're saying. I had someone say to me, even recently, I have a prophetic message from God for you and your church. And he wrote it out. And he gave me a copy and all the elders. Okay, I want to hear that. I believe that could be true. I want to hear it. I want to be open to that. I'm not going to immediately throw a blanket on that. But when we met to discuss it, any effort to take what was said and line it up with the word of God was met with objection. This brother said, that's theology. I'm not interested in theology. That's what churches use to squelch the Holy Spirit. No, I'm sorry, brother. I love you, but that's not from God. We take what we hear and we line it up with the word of God. To do anything else is dangerous. This is our primary test. One night, the famous Bible teacher F.B. Meyer was aboard a ship as it was coming into harbor. And it was a dark, stormy night. The visibility was low. And he goes up into the, the bridge and he asks the captain, how do you know when to turn the ship into that narrow harbor? And the captain replied, that's an art. He said, do you see those three red lights on the shore? He said, when they're all in a straight line, I go right in. He lines them up. In a similar way, we have to take what we hear in the word of God, and, or what we hear, and take it to the word of God and see, does that line up? Or is that not in line with what God says? When those three lights line up, we go straight in. We're on course. It's true. We can trust it. I like what Donald Gee said. He was a Pentecostal Bible teacher, charismatic man, and he said something that I think is really, really good. He said, all word, no spirit, we dry up. All spirit and no word, we blow up. With the spirit and the word, we grow up. Isn't that good? I think that's true. We don't have anything to fear in a legitimate move and working of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be open to that. 
as a church. I believe every one of you has gifts. Some of you may have what would be called a sign gift. Praise God. We don't want to squelch that. We don't want to throw a blanket on that. But we want to be discerning. We have to exercise discernment and take it back to the word of God. And my job as a, as a pastor and teacher is not to bring you some new revelation. It's not. My job is to bring illumination to the old re- revelation. God's word is here. My job is to unpack and explain that. Now, I'm not saying God can't give us some word, some new insight, but it's not going to be new revelation. His revelation is complete. We have his word. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So, God instructs us to test everything. And then our passage ends, the end of verse 21 and 22. It says, hold on to the good and avoid every kind of evil. Well, this is the whole purpose for discernment. So that we might hold on to the good, take it to heart, apply it to our lives. And at the same time, we need to recognize evil is evil and avoid it. Here's the difficulty. Evil often comes dressed up as good. Wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't come to you and say, I'm a wolf, I'm here to tear your congregation apart. No, they go, I'm a little sheep and I got truth. (laughs) I'm, I'm dressed up as good. We have to be discerning. We can be told by our society that we're being unloving or intolerant if we don't embrace certain things. But what does God's word say? Does that line up? And if it doesn't, we don't hold on to it. We avoid it. It's evil. So pursuing spiritual fitness is a lot like physical fitness. But we've got a power on our side. Like Dan said, we're not talking about legalism. We have the power of God, but we still have to participate in this process. Some things I've found about exercise, no matter what I'm doing, any series of exercise, if it push-ups, sit-ups, running, whatever, for me, the hardest part is not the last one. It's the first one. It's the first sit-up, not the last one, because I have to be disciplined to actually do it, to get started, not just think about it. I do like the idea of virtual reality, if they could paste my head on a really (laughs) muscle-bound guy in his 30s, (laughs) something like that, virtual fitness. But we have to be disciplined. And another thing I found is although the exercise gets easier, it never gets easy. It never does. If you want it to be easy to run three miles, you have to run five. And then three will be easy, five will be hard. If you start only running three miles again, it'll get hard again. It's hard. It always is. It always will be. It will get easier, but it never gets easy. So as we recap what we've seen, think about where do I need to get started? What things do I need to begin in my life? And where do I need determination to keep going? Think about that and let's just do a a quick recap of what we covered. This is God's letter to us at Riverside, to us personally. Physical fitness is good. Godliness is far better. Is this why there's so many really big preachers in the South? I don't know. Maybe there's too much godliness and maybe not enough. No, I digress. Both are good. 
Spiritual fitness is far better. So train yourselves to be godly. The same passage says, train yourselves to be godly. Because history is marching forward to an appointment with the risen Lord. You are going to see him face to face, whether you believe or not. You want to be ready. We want to be in shape. Here's God's will in all things. Joyful, prayerful, thankful. Jackpot. Keep it in mind. You don't, maybe, maybe you're in kind of a secular workplace and you can't put a, a Bible verse on your desk. I hope you can, but you can at least put jackpot. I'm winning the jackpot. A reminder, I want to be joyful. I want to be prayerful. I want to be thankful in all things. Don't overlook this in the search for God's will on the big things. This is on everything. To be joyful always, we need the right perspective and we need God's presence. Joy is not going to happen by getting rid of all of our trials. It's going to happen when we have a, the right perspective on our trials and we seek out God and we spend time in his presence. Let's learn to pray throughout the day. Let it be an ongoing conversation with God. Prayers go up, blessing comes down. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Don't forget to be thankful in everything. Not thankful for everything. Thankful in everything. It's just so easy to move on to our next list of needs. But we need to go back to the Lord in thankfulness. Don't throw a blanket on the Spirit's fire. We need his work in our lives. We need his presence. We need his passion. We want to be on fire for him. We need his refining fire. We need purity as well. Well, we also need to exercise discernment. Test everything. The word of God is the test. We need to make sure that what we hear, what we see, what we're doing lines up with God's word. And then hold on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. We can't do this without really careful discernment. So, this is God's fitness plan for us. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you'd take this word of yours and you'd plant it deeply in our hearts. That our hearts would be tilled up and fertile and that this word would take root and that it would bear much fruit, God. Help us to pursue godliness with the same determination that an athlete pursues physical fitness. We want to be Olympians for you, Lord. We want to run the race in such a way as to win. So show us the first step. Show us the next steps. Give us determination and strength to do it and to keep doing it. Because we're going to see you soon, God, face to face. And we want to be ready. We look forward to that day. So, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done right here in our lives, in Riverside, in this place first, and then in this earth, Lord. We love you. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.